Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf Yud Dalid, page 14. Our daf has on it, for the bulk of the daf, a list of what it calls the seven prophetesses. Seven. And the thing that I find most interesting here, besides the list itself, and we'll talk a little bit about why that list is interesting, um, is the fact that the Gemara does this, that it categorizes people, things, places, and so on, um, into groups that are not necessarily readily avail- available or apparent from the text of the Bible itself. Sheva Niviot Man Ninhu, the seven prophetesses, who are they? Sarah, Miriam, Devorah, Hannah, Avigail, Hulda, Ve'ester. So most of those names kind of translate into the English and Hebrew the same way. Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Hulda, and Esther. So the fact is some of these are very easily identifiable as prophetesses and some of them are not. And beyond that, we can always ask the question, why aren't the other women that we know who in fact, some of them like Rivka does get, um, you know, a direct conversation with God is, and she's not on the list, which is its own interesting discussion. We're not going to talk about Rivka today because she's not on the list, but keep it in mind as, as a question, you know, anytime we get one of these lists, who is on and why is as I think at least as interesting as who is left off and why are they not here? So Sarah is considered one of the prophetesses, right? Because she is, because it says directly that Abraham is supposed to listen to her voice, right? So then that means that God is tension or or um, as the conduit to convey his message. Then that's a legitimate use of what's a what's a prophet, right? What's Prophetess. We're going to switch off who's going to talk about each of these seven. Um, so, your data, Miriam. Okay, so now we'll go into Miriam. Now, I uh, we, which starts as follows Miriam Dichtiv. And so, basically, what the Gemara is going to do here is they're going to try to bring the Pasuk that shows us how we know that they're actually a prophet. Um, and so, here they're quoting a Pasuk from Exodus, from Shemot, chapter 15, verse 20. Batikach Miriam Hanavia Achot Aram. So now this one is a little bit easy because it actually refers to her as a Nivea, as a prophetess. We'll see um, in, uh, you know, in the other cases, right, that it's not always the case, but here it's very explicit. Now, the question they want to ask, though, is Veloachot Moshe, right? Why does it not mention that she's the sister of Moshe? Why does it only say she's Achot Aharon? Amarav Nachman Amarav Shaitan Mit Naba Kishahi Achot Aharon. Because Rav Nachman says the name of Rav, that she prophesied actually when she was only the sister of Aaron, meaning before Moshe was born. And what did she say? In the future, my mother will birth uh, the, save, the saver of, uh, the, uh, of uh, or the person who will deliver B'nai Yisrael. And when Moshe was born, and this is a very famous uh, line in the Gemara, and it's also referred to midrashically, the whole house was filled with light. Her father stood and kissed her on her head, right? Amram, this would be, although they don't refer to him by name. And he says, my daughter, your nevuah came true. But when he was sent to the river. Now, I think one of the things that we have to see is, right, Yeor and Ora are very, very similar in terms of how they're spelled. So I think that's partially where this Midrash comes from. 
Her father stood over her and hit her on the head. And he says to her, okay, what happened to your prophecy now? And so it says his sister stood at a distance. This is a basuk from Shmo chapter two, uh, verse four, to know what happened. Now, one thing that you need to know about this word of tetzav, of like standing, right, is that this concept of standing, right, also has like an idea of sort of bearing witness or bearing testimony, right? Like we stand, but the idea is, is that she's standing at a way to see what exactly was going to happen. Right, and to, in, the, in the end to sort of see what happened to her prophecy. In other words, she wanted to be the person to see what exactly was going to happen. So again, I think the key here with Miriam is, is that first of all, she is directly referred to as a Nivu, as a Nivea, um, which is different than the other people that we're going to be talking about. Um, and the second is, is that there's a lot of fill in here that is, you know, based on a very close reading of the Pesukim, right? That she's called Achot Aharon and not Achot Aharon B'Moshe. Um, but this whole thing about sort of the house being filled with the Ora and then him being sent to the Yeor, um, you know, is a very Midrashic interpretation of what exactly happened while she while she was giving her prophecy. I would also like to note that, and I think that Miriam is a great example of this, that just because one is identified as a prophetess, or for that matter, a prophet in the Torah, it doesn't mean uh, in any of Tadach, please, aware her knowledgeable about she's going to bring, right? It means a recipient of at least once. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything more than that. Um, well, you know, the, the story, fact that as they say it proves it right because she prophesied Moshe would be born. Then Moshe seems to be basically deemed to be killed. And so she actually needs to see what's going to be the end of this. Right. Like, and she's she looking in real life. Looking, right. She's looking in real life. She's not looking in prophecy. Exactly. Right. That's my my observation. Um, she's not actually the only one who's called a Nivia. We also have Devora. Devora Dichtiv Udvara Isha Nivia Eshet Lapidot. Um, in the book of Judges, chapter four, we have a discussion of treatment of Devora the prophetess. And the Gemara here goes on to say, well, you know, okay, she was called a prophetess because she was a prophetess, and then it goes on to discuss why she she was called Eshet Lapidot, right? Because Lapidot is you know, is that her husband's name? Is that the wicks that she would make? Meaning, is it literally that she was involved in this as a profession? And then it goes on to, the Gemara goes on to talk about how she would sit under the palm tree and she was a judge, right? She's the only female judge in, in the book of Judges. But the discussion of her prophecy is completely absent here. Meaning the, the, the Navi, the book of Judges calls her prophetess. She's on the list. And the Gemara doesn't talk about what her prophecy was. And for that matter, I'm not even sure that she's known for it, you know, for future seeing or for receiving the word of God. It's not so explicit within Sefer Shoftim either. It's more that she is the leader because she's got God's favor and, and people knew to come to her. And it seems to be a much more local kind of prophecy than anything that gets written down in, in great detail, like the prophecy of Moshe or Isaiah or, you know, any of these big... Uh, male prophets. Right. Well, it makes sense because it's in Sefer Shoftin, which was sort of like these localized, you know, leaders. And I think, in fact, when you're reminded that she is called a Nivea, it's almost surprising, you know, because it's really the time of the Shoftin, who, yes, many of them interacted with the Malach or, 
did get some kind of sort of guidance from God, but they're not prophets exactly the way you're talking about it, Anne, in the classical sense of like the Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, Yechazkel. Right, right, right. Okay, so now we move on to Hannah. Um, and so Hannah, we also say, was a prophetess. Now, again, she's one word, doesn't say it explicitly. And here they quote a pasuk from Shmuel Aleph, chapter 2, verse 1. Right, where she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Um, and here the Gemara says, Rama karni below Rama baki, right, where it says, uh, that her horn was ex- exalted and not her pitcher. Um, and what this means is, is that by referencing a horn, right, because what she was referring to here was that eventually to, uh, King David and, and Shlomo, they were going to be anointed from a horn and that was going to be a kingship that continued where Shaul and Yehu, they were anointed from a pitcher and their kingship did not continue. And so therefore it shows that she was a prophetess because she prophesied about those being anointed with a horn whose, you know, kingdom would sort of uh, leave, uh, you know, sort of continue forever. And again, Anne, I think what you said about Devorah, it's interesting here. Like this isn't really like a prophecy in that classical sense. Um, It's also interesting. It's not really like an integral part to the story about, Shmuel and his birth. It's really picking up on this one, these two very small words um, in her tefillah um, and, you know, saying by that, by virtue of that, um, that there is, you know, that there is some type of uh, prophecy there. And then the Gemara goes on um, to sort of uh, give a little bit of a drusha of, you know, some of the things that she says, uh, you know, in, in that parak. Um, we're not going to read all of them, uh, you know, but it, it, it spends a little bit of time sort of just talking about what those psukim of Aleph and Bet in, in Perak Bet of Shmuel Aleph, uh, what they mean. Um, but we'll skip that. But again, I think Khan is also an unusual one, even more so than Devorah. Devorah, we know, is sort of like at least a community leader. The Khan story is a very personal story. And yet, based on these two words, she's given the status of being a Nevi'ah. The next one, Avigail, perhaps even more so than than Chana, because Chana at least becomes the model for prayer, right? We know her story very well. Avigail is is labeled a Neviah, according to the Gemara here, basically in because of what turns out to be a fairly private at the time, or maybe it wasn't so private conversation between her and David, in that she comes out to prevent David from ki- from killing Naval. Naval. The story of Avigail and David perhaps is less known than some of these others, right? Avigail had been the wife of Naval, and David is going to come, King David, was going to come king, kill Naval, and she comes out to prevent that from happening. And so the Gemara goes through a whole lot of, uh, even some fancy footwork amongst these psukim to explain how she knew to come, what what is going on that she comes to stop David. And, you know, and then this becomes the the calling card for her as a prophetess eventually she then does later marry david herself and and it becomes you know she's one of the i guess the wise women in his life and a very key um element in his kingship but you know in terms of her her savvy and her knowledge 
But that doesn't, those are not the examples. Those are not the, that's not this narrative that is brought here as the proof of her being a Nivea. I would say that in terms of um, a more roundabout way of getting at a proof of a prophetess being a prophetess, that's this example. Meaning Avigail, for all that I'm not reading it all inside, you can take a look yourself. You'll see that the, the it's a lot of, um, discussion of this story of David and, and Naval and Avigail and her coming there, but none of it is, and therefore God spoke to Avigail. There's nothing direct to hint at that. Yeah, and I was, so we're, because we, you know, Anne and I were sort of trying to figure out what we wanted to talk about. Pay attention to the description about the plural of Damim um, and, you know, why it doesn't say Dam there, because there's also a whole interesting inference they make about how Abigail sort of, there's an implication there that she really sort of seduced, you know, King David. And I think it's interesting based on to contrast that with the story about Sheba, but that could be a whole other podcast. And apparently a sidebar from her being a prophetess. Right, 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 very right, interesting. right. It's very interesting, but it does not seem to be like the others seem to be, you know, okay, we've got a verse. This is how we prove it. And we'll, you know, talk about the person at a drop. This is really a whole intensive discussion that does not seem to be connected to her role as a prophetess. Right. Um, okay, so just pay attention to that little detail of the story. Then the next one we get to is Hulda, right? Hulda Dixit. So Hulda is one many people have not heard of. Um, and there it says, um, And it says there in that pasuk that they went to Hulda Hanivia. So this is a pasuk from Malachim Bet, chapter 22, verse 14. Um, uh, that Chukia, the priest, and Shafan, and Asiya, they go to Hulda the prophetess. Right, and so the Gemara says, but if Yirmiyahu was at that time, because they know that the people that are described in this pasuk are the same time as Yirmiyahu, how could she also be a prophet? Right, in other words, Yirmiyahu was clearly the greater prophet, sort of. So, how is she also a prophet at the same time? Amri Bey Rav Mishmei de Rav, right? So, the school of Rav said in the name of Rav, so their solution to this is that Hulda had to be a relative of Yirmiyahu, and therefore he didn't mind that she was prophesizing. Now, again, it, it, it's it's totally interesting because there's not really like proof of that from the text. Um, and I think here's the first inkling we sort of have in the Gemara itself that there is some sort of discomfort uh, with sort of having female prophets. And we're going to see they say that explicitly later on. Right. And then it goes on to say, But how could Yoshiyahu ignore me, Yermiyahu, and send these emissaries to Hulda? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Amri Debe, Rabbi Shele, so the house of Rabbi Shele, that's cool. You say, Because women are more compassionate. So he wanted to sort of get a more compassionate, let's say, whatever the answer was going to be, that it was going to be more compassionate. Than the way Yirmiyahu would say it. And I think this is interesting because we know Yirmiyahu is basically the prophet of doom, right? And was ignored and thrown into jail. And, you know, he, he does not say things nicely. Um, and so here- the He doesn't have nice like, things to say either. Right, right. And so, you know, the text sort of reverses itself here. Here, the, this saying, you know, this teaching of Be'i Shilei, like seems to say, no, maybe having female prophets are good because Rahmani Yotain, like, we know that they say things, they tend to say things with more compassion. Um, and then finally, you know, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, you know, Rabbi Yochanan, he has a different answer about this. 
that Yirmiyahu wasn't there because he wanted to bring back the 10 tribes. Um, and where do, so in other words, it's sort of like Yirmiyahu was busy uh, doing something else. And uh, therefore, you know, he was sort of like uh, not available at that time. And then they digress into a whole interesting thing about the 10 tribes and where they were exactly. Um, so, you know, so that takes care of hold up. There's another discussion. I don't know who says this. Maybe it's one of the commentaries on the on Navi, on Malachim that says that Hulda's, um domain of prophecy was very much there in Yerushalayim at the gate, right? As opposed to Yermiao, maybe it's connected to this Rabbi Yochanan position where, where Yermiao was prophesying to the whole country. And so that because her domain was more local, and even perhaps more relevant to the king at that moment, right? That that would also be a reason for Yoshiao to call to her. I I I don't see the reluctance here that you do about Hulda. Meaning, I know that we're going to see that later, but I don't see it here as a concern about Hulda being a Nivea. I think that the Gemara is, you know, kind of actively finding us Niviot that we wouldn't autom- automatically think yeah, are Niviot. I, I hear that. So, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that it's sort of the question of like, well, if you have your meow, how could you have Hulda? But I, you're right. I think. But I think the question is. But I think the question is raised about the, there's a discussion of, they call them the four prophets of prophecy at the same time. Right. Meaning Yishayahu, Amos, Micha, and Hosea. All, yes, all correct. Four, They're all at the same time. And then also they ask, you know, how come we needed four to do the job? Like, isn't one enough? And the answer, the the easy answer is really each one of them had you know, either a different audience or a different area or whatever. And I feel like that, so you have to do that, right? It seems that we're always told that there were tons of Naveem who never made it into the canon. I feel like the bigger question is when we do have them in the canon, we're supposed to, we're automatically supposed to say, you know, how could there be two prophets prophesying at the same time? We should only need one. The entire people should only need one, which is an interesting premise, I think. Yes. All right. Now, last but not least, Sam. Esther. Now, let's just raise the question. Everybody here should be asking the question on Esther because we've talked about this many times. Megillah Esther does not have God in the Megillah. So how can Esther be a prophetess to begin with? So the text says, the Gemara here says, Esther Malchut. On the third day, Esther clothed herself in royalty. Malchut Should she? Re- it should have said, the Gemara says that it should have said that she clothed herself in royal garments as opposed, meaning Big day malchut, as opposed to tilbash malchut, as opposed to just in royalty. It doesn't say clothing. Elish lavaster ruach hakodesh. So rather, she clothed herself. She was wearing whatever clothing she was wearing with the divine inspiration. So then, when it says hachav tilbash v'ktiv hatam ruach lavsha et amishai, and then later it says that she's going to. I'm sorry, amishai. In it later meaning in divrei yamim, it says that she was. The spirit clothed Amasai. There too, there he's clothed in spirit. Here too, she's clothed in spirit. And if I needed an example that moved farther away from the text to get to the divine aspect of prophecy, this is the example. Because I might think that clothing is, you know, very mundane, very human, very much a matter of people doing what people do. And instead, here it is as an example of you know, where the Gemara takes it into clothing her in the divine spirit as as prophecy. Why do we need to say that, that Esther herself was a prophet, a prophetess? And and I think that 
you know, it becomes an interesting conundrum, especially with regard to Esther at a time when we know that prophecy was on its way out as a as a phenomenon at all. Um, but I do think that there is some recognition of the fact that, you know, look, if we want to be very careful in our read of this verse, but Tilbash Esther Malchut, the fact that she clothed herself in what is this kingship, monarchy, something, right? That she's royalty, then and it, and we are not told about the word of clo- the clothing word, meaning there's no word describing the fact that these are big day malchut and not just malchut. Then it does a little bit smack of she knew what was coming. She knew that she was going to be, you know, uh, I mean, you know, what is she doing that she's dressing up in this way? Listen, she's been queen already for a while. At the point of this is from chapter he- chapter five, right? So I, I don't have an easy answer why the Gemara wants to include Esther on the list. But once she's on the list, this seems as good of a verse of, as any to to be the proof text. Well, I think they have to include her on the list because it also sort of allows, you know, Megillah Esther to be part of the canon, which was always a little controversial. Even though all the Ketuvim sort of fall in this, you know, it's part of that third section of Tanakh that's sort of not really books of prophecy directly, um, but I think if they can get a little bit of proof to bolster it being there, it works for them. And then I'm just going to conclude with sort of, you know, this last weird statement of Rav Nachman. Like now we just went through these seven prophetesses and we finally end with Rav Nachman. Of um, Rav Nachman, lo right? Haughtiness is not befitting a woman, right? In other words, basically saying these women, it's not so great that they were prophets because it's, there's something haughty about that. Tarti yihiran havin, right? Because two of these women were haughty, right? And their names are basically, you know, loathsome or not nice creatures, right? Right? One, Devorah is called a hornet, right? You know, Devorah means a bee, a hornet. And one was called a martin, where it's like a weasel or something like that, right? Um, And so, uh, right, and then it goes on, right? Katibe, uh, Right. And so how do we know that, you know, she was that Deborah was haughty because she sent and called for Barak. She didn't go and get him herself. And how do we know that Hulda was? Because the Pasuk has, sorry, that was a Pasuk before in Shoftim, chapter four, verse six. And here we have for Hulda, Pasuk, and again, Malachim Bet, chapter 22, verse 15, she says, She says, say to the man, and she was referring to Yoshiau, the king, below Amra'im Ru'am Um, And so, you know, this is sort of trying to say, like, these women were actually very haughty. Now, okay, I, this to me is like a misogynistic comment. <laughs> <because> <laughs> like, we don't see this written about men anywhere. And, and I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this and try to come up with some apologetic here. Um, I just think, I think we need just to be careful. There's different people talking in this right this is not the Gemara, right like i think that's what we have to be careful of like this isn't a statement of a particular amora and you know the same way we uh have many areas of law today or i don't know any area where there's expertise and discussion people will have a variety of opinions so this is a recorded opinion that we acknowledge many people may not be thrilled to read and may find problematic. But yes, this isn't like an unnamed Mishnah that everybody is agreeing with. Correct. Right. Exactly. Meaning we have different opinions and then they are also, 
um, I guess, entitled to them, right? Nobody's, nobody's saying, well, I don't I think it's a difficult position to sustain, not because it's misogynistic, but because they are presented as neviot in the text of Tanakh. So, like, what do you think you're doing calling them names? You know, like, the, God came to them. The Torah, the Navi tells us that. Who are you to say that they that they were haughty? Like, God is going to come speak to you? You know, on the other hand, by contrast, right, we were told that I don't know where this is. This Amora's mind, right? That Moshe was called Anav Mikol Adam, that God came and spoke to him, and yet he. I don't think that we have any reason other than this particular Gemara to assume or infer that Devorah and Hulda were any less Anav in God speaking to them, meaning there's them as arrogant. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us for you. where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this DAF and the Shevin of Yot. Um, Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website and until tomorrow go and learn.